Jesse, last week definitely confirmed for me that I only want to be married one time. What do you have for me this week? For one turn-of-the-century socialite, husbands and lovers make a deadly mix. I'm Andy Cassette. I'm Jesse Bray, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder. This is a podcast all about where relationships and human interest meet good old true crime. We tell the stories of ordinary people that snap because of jealousy, lust, love, and greed. I'm excited for another historical love murder adventure, but first, a few quick reminders. Our socials. We're at Love Murder Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and we just started a new Facebook page, so you can totally search for us there as well. Lastly, you can find us on the web at lovemurder.love. Yes, I am totally loving this new Facebook community. So everyone who has liked us and signed up for uh, updates, thank you guys so much. We also want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review. Yes. That may, uh, it really makes such a difference, guys. And we really, really, truly appreciate it. Also, when I'm deciding to try a new podcast, there is nothing more important than what other fans have to say. So if you like Love Murder, please consider popping on over to Apple and uh, dropping us a little review. Lastly, if you have any case ideas, please send us an email. Our email address is lovers at lovemurder.love, and we'd love to hear from you in any stories or even, like you said the other day, Jesse, those date experience, bad dates. I feel like that could be really fun to hear from. Absolutely. We are interested, of course, in murders that are caused by love, but we are also interested in love gone wrong in every capacity. And we actually prefer stories from you in which you survive. So (laughs) please please tell us any of your um, good, bad, or ugly love stories. Okay, Andy, are you ready to go back in time to 1911 and hear about a scandalous socialite and her many lovers? I can't I can't believe we're going back to 1911. That's wild. Well, I had so much fun in Kenya in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. So I figured let's go in the Wayback Machine and go to 1911 and have even more fun. All right. Let's do it. Okay. 1911 found Denver, Colorado, still trying to shake off its dusty boots and reputation as a frontier town. Well, the roughneck miners who populated the town some 50 years before when it was settled were still large in number. A new breed of genteel socialites and cattle and oil barons were designing magnificent towers, fancy mansions, and luxury establishments all around town. The fantastic Brown Palace was one such hotel, soaring above the surrounding buildings to become the tallest structure in Colorado at the time of its completion in 1892. To this day, yeah, actually, I wrote... I wrote erection first at the time of its erection in 1892 and I like crossed that out and then I wrote completion and then I was like, okay, both of those are pretty sexual. But when it was built, it was the tallest structure. Tallest erection. It was the tallest erection in Colorado. (laughs) To this day, it operates the second oldest hotel in Denver, an architectural delight whose famous guests have included the unsinkable Molly Brown a mere week after she was rescued from the Titanic, the Beatles, and seven American presidents. Whoa. On that late night of May 24th, 1911, however, the marble bar at the Brown Palace was simply just the hot place to see, be seen, and down several cocktails. 
While the denizens of the upscale bar made merry, no one could have predicted the violence that would erupt, leaving two men dead, one grievously injured, and all parties to the crime and scandal utterly ruined forever. This is a tale of high society, adultery, drugs, illicit love letters, and eventually murder. While citizens of the now-modern city believed the Wild West shootouts were a thing of the past, they hadn't counted on the seductive attentions of the city's most beautiful woman to arouse the violence and wildness that, of course, exists deep down in the hearts of all men. So, let's talk about the main players in this story, shall we? Yes, please. John Springer was born July 16, 1859, into a well-to-do political family. His father was an attorney and his uncle was a congressman, so they were pretty well known. He attended Asbury University, which has since become DePauw in Indiana, where he discovered he had extraordinary oratory skills, which apparently makes you very popular at parties in the 1800s and early 1900s. That makes sense for sure. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of entertainment, so somebody who could give a good rousing speech, I guess, was considered the man of the hour. Just like someone else I know. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, he followed in his family's footsteps by becoming a lawyer and practiced in Illinois for 10 years before he moved to Texas to marry an Eliza Clifton Hughes, who was the only daughter of a wealthy Dallas banker and cattleman who was named Colonel William Hughes. So this was a very strategic marriage for John. It put him in a very good place, both politically and financially, as this guy was hella rich. He took over a lot of the Hughes cattle interests and became a director of the Texas Cattle Raisers Association. He and Eliza had two daughters, Annie, born in 1892, and Sarah in 1898, who tragically died when she was only nine months old. No. Yeah. So that was, you know, obviously terrible. And it did not say what the cause of death was, but obviously back in the late 1800s, it was really hard to get children to an adult age. And it could have potentially been tuberculosis because Eliza, the mother, had suffered from it for many, many years. Um, the her condition, TB. The old TB, yeah. And at this point, obviously, they didn't know what to do about TB. And so as her condition worsened, the family had moved to Denver from Texas in 1896, hoping that the climate would improve her health. Mm. Oh, boy. So John Springer became the vice president of Chamber of Commerce in Denver only a year after arriving, and he channeled his energies into breeding horses and building a luxury ranch on 12,000 acres. Wow. That's so many acres. <laughs> It was called Cross Country Ranch. Beginning in 1901, he constructed a 22,000-square-foot castle, complete with turrets on the property. So that was where they lived when they lived at the ram. In 1903, he gained fame for a 4th of July speech he gave at the Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder, Colorado, and he turned his eye towards politics. In 1904, he ran as the Republican nominee for the mayor of Denver and lost in what was described as the most corrupt election in the city's history. Whoa, why? Yeah. So the Democrat was this guy named Robert Speer, and he – I don't think he created this. I think this is like a political move as old as time. But he essentially bought discounted coupons for like sandwiches and hot meals and that sort of thing from different restaurants and sandwich purveyors. And he would then employ policemen and other people to give them out to the poor 
as long as they promised to vote for him. So it was kind of a quid pro quo. Here's a sandwich. And this garnered him a votes from, you know, the people, the working class who wanted a free sandwich, but also um, from the local establishments because he was still paying for the coupons at least at a discounted rate so they were getting money too and they were getting more business so everybody was really pushing him also he had a really kind of crooked campaign manager who started paying operatives to vote several times under different names okay i mean that's just straight up cheating that's just straight up cheating. And records also showed that it seemed as though dead men were rising from the grave to vote for him <laughs> because you know, they were using people like dead people's licenses and stuff. So ridiculous. Yeah. So when they did win, uh, like a spear backer, like a guy who had contributed to the campaign said, it cost us more money to defeat Springer than any other man who ever ran for office. So he lost by 4,900 votes. And that was roughly the estimate of all of the cheaty votes. So he probably might have won if uh, if they hadn't cheated. Oh, my God. Okay. So things are getting worse for John Springer. This is really sad. So he is Already lost his daughter years before, which is so terrible. And then he lost the election. And only five days after his election failure, his wife, Eliza, lost her battle with tuberculosis and died at only 35 years old. So he's on in the farm castle just with his daughter now? Yeah, with just with his one daughter. Oh, no. I know. And he doesn't even have a campaign or a city to run or anything to distract him. It was said that, like, Eliza had been doing very poorly for a long time and that she was the one who told him that he should run for mayor and that she actually got, like, a little healthier at the end because she was so supportive of him and that when he lost, it seems like her spirits Okay, that's plundered. so sad. Isn't that devastating? Yeah, I don't like that. No. So, you know, things were not looking great for John Springer. But less than two years later, in 1906, John Springer became acquainted with a divorcee socialite, Isabel Patterson Folk. Uh, she was 20 years his junior, and she was Ooh. described as a woman of charm and exceptional beauty, with large dark eyes and a soft, almost cherubic face. I mean, honestly, waiting almost two years, like back in the early 1900s, seems like very cautious to me. That doesn't seem like he was in a rush. No, no, not at all. Yes. And by all accounts, like everyone described her as the most beautiful woman in St. Louis, and then later the most beautiful woman in... Uh, Denver, and I think she looks like Jenny Slate. Like she's got that, those big, big dark eyes, those like full dark hair, you know, like the, apparently she didn't love her more prominent nose, but other people thought it really gave her face like a strength and a structure. So she also had the large bosom and the itty bitty waist popular at the turn of the century. And I think pretty much any time yeah. in life. <laughs> in every century. In every century, I think we've always liked a nice bosom in a tiny ways. <laughs> um, in 1900, when she was only 20, she married John Folk, a traveling shoe salesman, and they moved to Memphis, Tennessee. But this was not a good marriage. He was a terrible drunk and just a horrible human in general. So the marriage was pretty much miserable from the start. There is evidence he was physically and emotionally abusive to her. And if he wasn't, like, 
beating her up. He was neglecting her by going on the road and not even telling her like where he was. John Folk giving sales reps a bad name. I don't like him. <laughs> yeah, he's not a good guy. So she she obviously hated being married to him and she also missed her life in St. Louis where she had been kind of a society girl and, you know, ran about town and had fun. So in June 1906, she separated from him and moved back. So she moved into the Jefferson Hotel, which at the time was the center of the social scene in St. Louis. And there she earned herself the nickname The Butterfly due to her fondness for attention and diversion. So she was like a social butterfly? Exactly. Yeah. That was what I got in high school. You were the social butterfly? I don't even want to talk about what I got. What did you get? I got biggest ego and biggest flirt. (laughs) (laughs) I know. They basically said like stuck up slut. (laughs) Guys, I I swear I was very well behaved in high school. I I was was a virgin practically college, but I've always been a little bit of a flirt, so I'm not going to deny it. So in 1906, women were not even nationally allowed to vote. This is such a different time. And it's really interesting because she's living alone in this hotel without a guardian. So I'm not really sure how she pulled that one off. And I don't know who was paying for it because by all accounts, her ex did not have a lot of money. He was a traveling shoe salesman. And somehow she is like now in the luxury hotel of St. Louis, like living it up. So I don't know. It was suggested that she might have had some suitors who were footing the bill. She also was friends with a lot of the society women in St. Louis because she had been friends with them before and then a lot of them married wealthy and influential men. So it's put, it's maybe possible that her friends were footing the bill for her too, you know? Okay, that's nice. Yeah. So we don't know where her money was coming from at this point, but it seems like the decision to stay in the Jefferson was a strategic one because that's where all of the wealthy and elite either stayed at or lived at or partied at. Yeah, smart girl. Um, so it's, yeah, it's the best place to catch a moneyed husband for real. Yeah, which also is like, well, there's no career opportunities in <laughs> – you know, we're talking about like 1907 here. Like, what are you going to do? You know, there was really, I mean, even teaching, there was very few female teachers at this point. There were some nurses, but really there wasn't a lot of career prospects for her. And I'm not even sure of what her education level or if that would have even mattered at this time in life, you know? So crazy. So crazy. So she's at the Jefferson. And of course, this is where she meets John Springer, who is the enigmatic and wealthy widower. And this begins her rise to the upper reaches of society. So they met only a few weeks after she had moved into the hotel, and he was on his way to Kentucky to buy horses, of course, as one does. (laughs) You know. Casual. (laughs) Casual. Before the summer's end, she was visiting him in Denver, and their romance romance was really taking off. In December, she successfully received a divorce in St. Louis, citing abuse as the reason. And the divorce was granted when her soon to be ex-husband didn't even show up and didn't bother to contest the divorce. Do you think it's confusing that she married John after John? No, I feel feel like pretty much 50% of people in 1907 were named John. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think she called him John number one and John number two? Maybe she called him Mr. Springer. (laughs) Maybe. It's kind of hot. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, By the next April in 1907, 27-year-old Isabel was wed to 47-year-old John Springer, the second marriage for both. 
John immediately whisked his new bride to Denver, where he ensconced her in a red brick seven-bedroom mansion in the city and renamed his sprawling ranch Castle Isabel. Oh. Yeah, so this seems really great, except for the fact that John's ex-father-in-law, Colonel Hughes, was not a fan of this courtship and marriage. I was wondering. yeah, he did not like Isabel. Um, he had heard some things from people in St. Louis, and then he hired a private investigator to do some digging on her. And his sources said that Isabel was a woman of weak moral character and prone to promiscuity, drinking, and drug use. Uh-oh. So, yeah, she's just like drinking it up at the hotel, living her best life. There is some evidence that she had many suitors during her courtship phase with John. So she was still maybe seeing other people. But, of course, I don't know what courting means. We don't have any – there's no evidence she was, like, sleeping around or what even that looked like or meant, you know? And certainly nothing to get persecuted by some cranky old duffer, right? Yeah. So, anyway, Colonel Hughes convinced a judge – of Isabel's unsavory reputation and unfitness to be a guardian for his young granddaughter. And he basically took John Springer's daughter away. He became the guardian and he was appointed um, the guardian of 14-year-old Annie. And so she was taken away from Denver and given to, to her grandparents in Dallas to be raised. Do you think that was a good decision or was that like so extreme? Um, I mean, in retrospect, with everything that goes down and with the Springers at the center of multiple murders, I guess that he did make a good decision. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think looking at this from the outset, I was like, whoa, this guy's like kind of a judgy old jerk. But judgy in jerk. the end, this judgy jerk. Um, but in the end, he it seems like he was right. And also, it doesn't seem like John really put up a fight. I don't know it, how much he was paying attention to his teenage daughter during this courtship phase. And he had a young wife at this point. And so he might have just been ignoring her, you know? Yeah. So no sooner did Isabel arrive in Denver than the newspaper society columns were gushing over her. They loved her. They just thought she was like the coolest thing in the world. Oh, also, I'm going to read a section from some of the newspaper uh columns of the day, but I would like to mention my source, as I generally do in the middle of the episode. I read a fantastic book called Murder at the Brown Palace, A True Story of Seduction and Betrayal by Dick Crack. It's fantastic. Dick is an old newspaper man himself. He worked in San Francisco and in Denver. And when he retired, he's written a a bunch of really interesting historic and true crime related books. And this one, he like dug through all of the historical archives and all of the old Denver Post and different um, newspapers to craft the story. And it's it's really well done. So um, cheers to you, Dick Crack. Thank you for writing this book. Okay, going back to our gal, Isabel. So this is what they said when she moved in. We always thought John W. was pretty fair looking, but his wife is a stunning beauty. It is safe to prophesy that the Springer home is going to be a social center. And then um, when they're talking about like Foley's of 1910 at the Broadway Theater, Mrs. John W. Springer was one of the most strikingly beautiful women in the house, and with her was Miss Louise Cherry, tall, graceful, and blonde. Mr. and Mrs. Springer had a box party. Beside Miss Cherry in their box was H.F. Henwood and Frank Loveland. So H.F. Henwood... (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Hold on. Are you going to read every excerpt in that same dialogue? Because I... (laughs) Are you? Because I feel like you need to now. I think I do. Okay. 
Yeah, Springer traveled frequently for his banking, cattle, and other business interests. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's, okay, good. Let's see if I can, because I think I'm going to break, but I'll try. No, you need to. Okay. So the H.F. Henwood, um, who was mentioned at the end of that, actually becomes a very interesting figure in this story. What about so Cherry? it's a little bit of a foreshadowing. Louise Cherry, we don't really hear from again. Sorry, oh, Louise what Cherry. A good name. Yes, she was an actress too, I think. So also she like hung out with like some scandalous like models and actresses and stuff like that. She just was a fun girl, man. I want to hang out with her. Right. We always want to hang out with the bad girls. (laughs) So life with John afforded Isabel all she ever wanted, literally every luxury she could dream of. Multiple homes, all mansions and estates, business trips to New York City, winters spent in Pasadena. She had a plethora of maids and chefs, housekeepers and chauffeurs, literally like somebody to cater to her every whim. They were married for four years but never had any children. And so none of the sources really commented on why they didn't have children, but it was believed that it was a lot because of Isabel not really wanting it to get in the way of their traveling and their partying and they're enjoying their life. And I think he was content with his one daughter. Yeah. I don't really know how you would stop that from happening in 1910, though. (laughs) So I don't know if they did the rhythm method or how, but they did not seem interested in having children. Maybe they didn't have sex. Uh, Maybe they didn't. I don't know. So she even insisted at some point in having John set up permanent residence at the Brown Palace to be closer to the social scene in action. So they even had a house in Denver. And then, of course, the the ranch was outside of Denver. But she also wanted to live in like a fancy suite at the hotel. So it was like really close to the theater. So she was getting everything she could possibly want. So wild. It's so wild. So it should seem like Isabel's life was perfect, but of course she wanted more. Putting herself on a crash course that would explode in disaster and violence, she reconnected with an old friend and rumored paramour, Tony Von Fool. What? (laughs) Yes, his last name is Von Fool, P-H-U-L. You can't make so the shit up. No, you can't. I was literally trying to tell Nathaniel this story and he, he could not get over his name being Von Fool. And I was like, yeah, but it's a PH fool. And he's like, oh, so he's like cool. Like he's P-H-A-T. <laughs> pretty hot and tempting. Von Fool is, yeah, pretty hot and tempting. Oh, God. Yeah, so that's Tony Von Fool. And he was from St. Louis. So let's get to know Tony. Tony was born Sylvester Louis von Fuhl in St. Louis in 1878, the youngest of six kids into a well-known and upper-middle-class family. He was a star baseball and football player, and he was strong, athletic, and super adventurous. Um, He ended up standing over six feet tall and was a muscular 220 pounds by the time he reached adulthood. So he's really hard to describe because the first thing I thought was that he was like, an actually good-looking and slenderish norm from Cheers. <laughs> so we'll have to put a picture up on him, and you guys will have to tell us what celebrities you think he looks like because I could not find one other than basically Norm from Cheers if he was, like, hot in, in The Sopranos or maybe um, Jason Sudeikis, but I might be thinking that because he's, like, real-life related to George Wendt, who was Norm from Cheers. Which I'm still shook about. Yeah. (laughs) It's like one of those, like, slideshows. It's like Hollywood relations that you don't know about. I probably clicked on and found that out. So I'm sad for me that I know that. Yeah, (laughs) total. 
So yeah, anyway, going back to Tony, he gave up a lucrative career in a St. Louis brokerage firm to learn how to rope, ride, and break horses, eventually becoming a well-known steeplechase jockey, which is the really dangerous riding of horses where they're in a race, but they go around a track with um, jumps. And there's like water involved. It's it's extremely dangerous because you're going at a breakneck speed and you have to basically perform obstacles. Yeah, no thanks. He seemed to have no fear. In 1909, the St. Louis Republic published a profile about him which read – you ready for the accent? Oh, we get it? from boyhood. <laughs> I'm going to try to do it. This is from 1909, so I think it still applies. <laughs> he, from boyhood, had lived in a whirlpool of thrills, of dangerous excitement <laughs> – Okay, guys, I can't do it anymore. Sorry. (laughs) He spoke not in the spirit of bravado. He seemed to know not what nerves are, what is to chill. Neither does he become overly enthusiastic. He would have made a champion prize fighter. (laughs) I'm just more afraid when I speak in that accent, you're not going to understand me. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. That was good enough. I'll take it. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so basically he was a badass. Like he literally left a brokerage job to learn how to essentially be a cowboy. And then he was doing these dangerous steeplechase rides. And then they talked about this crazy incident where one night in St. Louis, he was coming home from a bar and two highwaymen with guns attempted to rob him. And he actually managed to, and he's completely unarmed, fight off two men with guns, knock one of them out completely, and then incapacitate the other one enough to drag him to the police station and turn him in. Whoa. Yeah, so this guy is not to be effed with. Like, he is a tough dude. In 1908, he took up a brand new and, at the time, extremely dangerous pastime, ballooning. Jessica. I was going to wait for your reaction. You're making this shit up. What is no. what is ballooning? It's hot air ballooning or like hydrogen ballooning, like, you know, like around the world in 80 days. I feel like this isn't your mother's Sonoma wine tour. This is like dangerous as ballooning. I feel like they've like – they use so many recreational names from the early 1900s as like fetish sex names now. <laughs> I know. Do you know what is ballooning? Isn't that? Oh, when... yeah, don't tell me. Okay. What is it? It sounds dirty. <laughs> Girls popping balloons. It's a fetish. Oh, like they bounce on them, like they like pop them with their butts or something. Yeah, they like pop them and. <laughs> God. God, there's so many play with them. I don't know about ballooning. But I feel like there okay. should be one called steeple chases for sure. Oh my God, that sounds like there's definitely one. <laughs> yeah. Ballooning is literally hot air ballooning, which if you can imagine back in the early 1900s was extremely dangerous. Like I still don't know exactly how people control hot air balloons. And so when it's like in its infancy of the sport, I think it was considered extremely dangerous. So here's an excerpt from Murder at the Brown Palace about one of Tony's ballooning adventures. Stop laughing at ballooning. (laughs) In 1909, Von Fuhl, his status among the ballooning crowd growing, and Major Albert Bond Lambert, another noted aeronaut. Apparently, that's what they called ballooners. Mm-hmm. They called them aeronauts. Aeronauts? They, no, like astronauts. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to make things. everything tonight sexual. Everything's going to have an innuendo. This is kind of a drier episode because it takes place in 1911 and you could only be so saucy back then. And so the papers had to be very careful about how they reported things. So I think it's okay that you're going to make everything a little little dirty. You're welcome. So 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. For me and our listeners, we thank you, Andy, for certifying <laughs> everything. Okay, back to the ballooning adventure, Got all right? Mm-hmm. Sailed from St. Louis to Ridgeville, South Carolina, 685 miles away in 15 hours and 29 minutes. Their takeoff from St. Louis on October 15th did not portend a safe flight. The ascent was one of the most dangerous ever witnessed at the gas works, owing to the puffy wind the St. Louis Globe Democrat noted in the front page story. Only quick work by the two aeronauts who dumped two and a half bags of ballast allowed them to clear telegraph wires by 20 feet at one end of the takeoff zone. En route to South Carolina, the men narrowly averted a crash in the Cumberland Mountains of Tennessee when clouds parted suddenly to reveal a large mountain in their path. Dumping ballast allowed them to rise over the obstacle. The obstacle being a fucking mountain. Yeah, this sounds really (laughs) stupid. This sounds insane. (laughs) At one point, the balloon, clocked at speeds up to 75 miles an hour, rose to 12,400 feet, where temperatures fell to minus 6 degrees. So they're insanely high. Imagine next time you're on the highway going 75, only you are in a basket, in a balloon. I live in LA. We never go 75. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. But isn't that crazy? Like, this is not for the faint of heart. This isn't a cute little, like, upsy-downsy. They're, like, really competing here. So she's, like, is Isabel, like, watching him? Like, they're just hanging out, friends. She watches him do all these dangerous things. So apparently there's some rumors that they knew each other from school. They were like r- roughly the same age. I think she was two years younger than him. They had come up in the same general area of St. Louis. Okay. So they might have known each other from before. And then he had thrown his hat in the ring to try to woo her before she married John. Um, Got it. So they, they have some history. So the last little bit of that adventure was – Lambert recalled in a 1928 reminiscence, we left for St. Louis at 6.30 p.m. and landed near Charleston, South Carolina. Shortly after daylight, we saw the ocean from the altitude of 14,000 feet. We had to come down in a hurry. We struck the top of the last tree with a high tide ahead. I managed to hang on, but Tony fell into a large bramble bush. The news of our flight preceded us. After a rough wagon ride, we reached Charleston to be greeted by the Chamber of Commerce, which organized a luncheon in our honor. Von Fool mysteriously disappeared and was not to be found in spite of a diligent search. At about 4 p.m., he made his appearance. Where have you been? He was asked by a large crowd gathered around. Down in the Turkish bath, having the thorns pulled out, he said. This guy is wild. Like, wild. Also, how do you find a Turkish bath in Charleston, South Carolina in 1909? I feel like Turkish baths were bigger in the early 1900s than they are now. Well, that's annoying. I know. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. I want to go to a Turkish bath. In between his exploits, Tony worked for Anheuser-Busch and later as a salesman for a champagne and wine distributor. So he was like a hard-drinking, hard-working, hard-playing guy. Von Fool's bachelorhood and reputation as an adventurous aeronaut and ladies' man made him a favorite among the young set in St. Louis. He was a regular at the graceful and stylish Jefferson Hotel, where he and Isabel would party all night long in the famous Gold Room, where a society writer noted that the place didn't even wake up until midnight. Ooh. Yes. So this is all of the evidence that we have that the two of them were involved in something is the following. One, according to sources, he ardently pursued Isabel before she chose to marry John Springer. Two, it appears that the two remained in touch after the marriage and would rendezvous when Isabel visited friends and family in St. Louis. 
Three, while it's difficult to pinpoint when the actual affair started and how physical it became, love letters were recovered after the shooting that pointed to it heating up between January and May of 1911, the same year as the murders. I mean, I love like a a quick, you know, rendezvous. (laughs) Who doesn't like a rendezvous with, you know, a rugged aeronaut? (laughs) A ballooner. A balloonist. Okay, so let's talk about these letters. The only definite proof of the affair between the two and whose existence would prompt the shooting, two men's death, and multiple people's undoing. So we have some expert uh, experts. Um, we have some excerpts recovered from the aftermath that were eventually published in Denver papers. But much to my chagrin, we do not have the letters in full. So essentially what happened is after the shooting, these letters were recovered and they were given to the district attorney. The district attorney was friends with John Springer. So he showed John Springer these letters, which are quite scandalous. And this shocked John Springer to the core. And since he was friends with the district attorney, the district attorney agreed to keep them out of the spotlight and not introduce them in the trial, even though they're really important evidence. But, you know, it's all who you know and political, et cetera. However, somebody from the district attorney's office must have leaked them to the papers and they ended up disappearing after that. So we have no idea what happened to the real letters and no one's ever found them. So the only excerpts we have are what from what the uh, newspapers published. Okay. And the newspapers did make notes that they were only publishing the decent and able to be read portions of the letter. Apparently, there was some lascivious, sexually explicit content in some of the letters. They were sexting. They were sexting. Yeah. They were settering, sex lettering. <laughs> I don't think that one's going to catch on. It doesn't really roll off your tongue. No. So, yeah. So there was definitely some sex going on here. But it being the early 1900s, they would have literally shut down the papers for having pornographic material back then if if the papers had written what these letters said. So, so prude. Prude. So the letters were heavily excerpted and edited. And even then, they were referred to as, hardly printable in the following quote. So um, one of the papers said, incidents in which Von Fuhl and Mrs. Springer figured are referred to constantly in them, meetings in St. Louis and Hot Spring, Arkansas, and the language, well, it's hardly printable. So even the ones that were safe and edited, some people found a little too much. Oh, everyone is so boring. So boring. Okay, Andy, are you ready for these letters? Yes, I've been waiting forever. (laughs) Okay. So this one is from January 31st, 1911. Dearest love, I can hardly bear to be away from you. I miss you so much. You are the only one I love in all of the world. Isabel. Okay, the next one's date unknown. Sweetheart, why don't you write to your little sweetheart? It has been three days since I had a line from you, and I am nearly crazy. I have been worrying myself to death for fear that something has happened to you. If I don't get a letter or some word from you within the next 24 hours, do you like my dramatic reading? Yes, Okay, good. If I don't get a letter or some word from you within the next 24 hours, I will take the first train to Kansas City so my little sweetheart can hold me in his arms. Did you make the balloon trip? Or did you take my advice and stay on the ground? I'm always worried when you are in the sky for fear something will happen. 
John is in the next room waiting for me to finish this letter so we can go to dinner. He thinks I am writing to my mother. Ooh, <laughs> harsh. <laughs> so evil. So the next one is February 12th. My darling, they are waiting in the hall with that funny little cart on which I'm going to take an automobile ride to take me to the operating room. John, Brother Arthur, and the rest of them are sitting in another room worrying themselves to death about my condition. But, dear, you are the only one I am interested in, if only they knew. I must cut this short, for the men are waiting in the hall and the nurse is standing in the room, waiting for me to finish this letter to take me to the operating room. Well, dear, if I don't come out of this, and if I never see you again, just remember that you are the only one I ever loved. So we have no idea what this surgery was. Really? Yeah, it's not recorded anywhere. So there's conjecture about what it was. Some people say it could be as simple as that she had appendicitis and got her appendix out. Okay. Some people suggested like maybe it was an abortion, but that would seem very weird that her husband and brother would know about that. So unless she was pretending it was something else, this seems unlikely. Yeah. So we don't know actually what was going on. There's no medical records to show exactly what was going on at this point, which is very strange. strange. Yeah. So she says something. She has a mention to Von Fuhl in another letter that says, you know what the trouble is. And then her sudden surgery only days later, they say hint at something other than appendicitis. But I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty shocking, you know, unless she – she worked something out with a doctor and, you know, doesn't it seem surprising that her brother and husband would be like in on this? Yeah, but I also don't know how much you'd be writing a letter when your appendix is failing. That's a really yeah. painful thing when you have appendicitis. That's bad. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. So we do not know exactly what was going on. So, so there's, weird. there's lots of, yeah, talk about this, but nobody knows for sure. Okay, so April 1911. My darling, just a little note tonight to let you know your little sweetheart is thinking of you. John is in the next room and likely to come in at any minute, so you must know I have to hurry. Oh, how I wish you were here tonight to tuck me in my little bed and kiss me goodnight. I have been sick ever since I left St. Louis, and you can't imagine how I've longed for you, sweetheart. It seems that something is always the matter with me. First, I was in the Mercy Hospital for that old operation. Then I was laid up with the grip and now dot, dot, dot. It is just one thing after another, and if I continue to be ill, I shall try and persuade John to let me go to the hot springs. Then I can see you and be with you, sweetheart. When do you expect to come to Denver? Sometime soon, I hope. Unless you make arrangements to come here, I shall leave for St. Louis within the next four weeks. Must close now, as I hear John moving about in the next room. Florence is coming tomorrow, and you know I am expecting a letter. If I fail to get one, you know I shall be disappointed. Hurriedly, Isabel. So Florence was her manicure and her confidant. And so what she would do is have Florence mail these letters for her. I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. So Florence would send the letters and also Florence would receive the letters. So Tony would write to Florence and he would put a star on the back of the envelope if it was actually going to Isabel. Yeah. So she wouldn't open it. She would just see the star and then she would deliver it to Isabel. And Isabel for this would pay her extra, obviously. Yeah. And he also used a code name. So when he signed her letters, like there was no reason for her to hide who she was because he was a single man. But he signed his letters M or Mabel so that he could like, if for some reason, I mean, it's very hard to hide these letters. But if for some reason John found them, she could say they were from an old girlfriend named Mabel in St. Louis. 
So uh, again, in April 1911, sweetheart, the operation is over and it was successful. I'm beginning to feel like myself again. Yesterday, the doctor took out the stitches and oh, sweetheart, how it did hurt. I didn't cry because I knew you would call me a baby. I am sending you a piece of one of the stitches which the doctor took out today. Ew! (laughs) Ew! This is the longest one I could find, and I told the nurse to be sure and save it for me because I wanted to send it away. She laughed at me, but I knew you would like to have it. Okay, that's disgusting. That's medical waste. (laughs) But this also reminds me there was a couple in 90 Day Fiancé who she sent him a piece of her umbilical cord after she gave birth. Was it his child? It wasn't even his kid. Okay. I cannot. There's there's precedent for this. Like when any of you guys who also watch 90 Day Fiance, you were probably like, that's really gross. But turns out people have been doing this for hundreds of years. (laughs) Yeah. So she's full on crazy. Nobody sends like things that were in or attached to their body to their lover if they're in a right state of mind. No. With all the love in the world and hoping to be with you soon, I am yours forever, Isabel. So then later, there's another letter that's date unknown. How I wish you were here tonight to tuck me in my little bed. She says a lot of things are little. And say nice things to me. Things that no one else in the whole world could say and make me happy. How I am longing for the time to come when you can hold me in your arms again and pat me on the head and whisper tender things to me. John doesn't think I'm as well as I am, and I will keep him thinking that way. Then when I tell him I need a trip, he will let me go back to Hot Springs so I can be near you. I feel like it's shocking to me that she has a little bed when she has like mansions and houses everywhere. (laughs) I think it's like a euphemism or something or like a cute, quaint turn of phrase or something. My little heart, my little bed, my little sweetheart. You're a little crazy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, so the next one, she's like looking at her incision scar. I was so afraid it would be bad and that it would leave an ugly scar and that you would not like it, but I believe everything is going to be all right and that I'm not going to be ugly. But you will not mind the scar, will you? You know, dear, that you promised to love me and to love the scar and you must keep your promise, Isabel. (laughs) I like how that one's a little ominous. (laughs) Isabel. Oh, God, that that just sent chills down my spine the way you said that. Um, So basically then she doesn't hear from her a couple days and she gets like a little pissy. Dear Tony boy, I did not get your message until yesterday. So they think that this one was mid-May. And this may be actually when she ends up being at the ranch with a man who's not her husband. So this is an interesting letter. So we want to remember this one. Dear Tony Boy, I did not get your message until yesterday. I had a frightful headache last night and could not answer you until today. I am very sorry you feel the way you do. And dear boy, I must assure you, you are wrong, wrong, wrong. I want you to give up that trip and come here directly. I shall expect you here in a week and no later. I want you here and you must come. If you do, I will tell you what you will be glad to hear, something I cannot put down here. There are reasons why you should at least postpone your trip and you will be glad you came. Frank is still here and is, of course, still acting naughty. 
which is a reference to the gentleman who is staying at their ranch. Okay. I have quite a surprise in store for you, something that will please you, I am sure, and the other will be all adjusted as soon as you arrive and you will be yourself again. So this is really interesting because something is happening in their relationship, but we don't know exactly what. Mm -hmm. And it seems like she's hinting and maybe even – seducing him into coming here. It seems like maybe she's going to tell him she's going to leave her husband or something. And she's suggesting that he's going to get this good news. Um, After this, it doesn't seem like she writes him more letters. Okay. Um, And he gets frustrated because there was one letter, only one of Von Fool's letters to Isabel was published. Um, And this was one that he signed with M, as in his code name. And he does not sound happy in this letter. If you are too busy to write me a letter, just say so, and I won't expect them. I have not heard from you for three days. I leave here about the 23rd for Denver, if my father does not die. But I am afraid the old man is in pretty bad condition, and I'm holding myself in readiness for a quick trip home. The least I expect from you is to behave yourself while I'm under this terrific strain and have nothing to do with that double-crosser. No, you don't have to take him out to the ranch or have anything to do with him. Just show him where he gets off or I will, M. So it's suggested that because she has flirtatiously and very stupidly mentioned Frank in previous letters, that now he's pissed. Because I I think that like he already wasn't happy that she married somebody else, but now she's potentially entertaining this other gentleman and Von Fuhl is not happy. So Isabel sent frequent telegrams to Von Fuhl, all of which expressed her love for him. I love you better than anyone else. I belong all to you, as you already know, Red One. Even more desperate was one she sent on May 20th, only three days before he arrived in Denver for the final countdown to his death. For God's sakes, wire me. I can't stand your silence any longer. I'm crazy to see you and be with you. You know what my answer will be when you come, Isabel. So this is very mysterious that she's absolutely 100% luring him there. So three days after that last telegram on May 23rd, 1911, a foul-mooted Tony Von Fool stepped off the Denver Limited train service from Kansas City. He took a cab directly to the Brown Palace, the luxury hotel and current choice of residence for Mrs. Isabel Springer. Nobody knows quite why Tony was visiting or why he was in such a dark mood. But it would stand to reason that A, it was due to some summoning on Isabel's part evidenced by their correspondence. B, he brought the letters with him. So there might have been some exchange or even blackmail happening surrounding their existence. Unless it's common for people to travel with all of their correspondence. C, he was absolutely royally pissed off that she was spending time with yet another gentleman, this guy Frank, who is decidedly not her husband or obviously Von Fool. And this is the Frank that's very briefly mentioned in those letters. So in March of 1911, so that year, Isabel was introduced to Harold Francis Henwood, who went by Frank and was a friend and business partner of John Springer's. Frank is tall and slim and mischievously handsome. He reminds me of, you know, the Scottish guy from The Mummy, like with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss, And he's like the third biggest character in it. I think he's Rachel Weiss's brother. His name in real life is John Hanna. He was also in Spartacus. So he has this like dapper, thin, gentlemanly, but like with a little hint of naughtiness vibe. Mm-hmm. 
So that's kind of what Frank looks like. And he was an aristocrat kind of in his own right. His parents had given birth to him. Well, his mother gave birth to him, obviously, in Italy while his parents were traveling and his dad had money and he was kind of like a a bon vivant who traveled around and he had never really had like a real job. And at this point, he had moved to Denver the winter before and he was selling oil. Like he was like an oil gas salesman. Interesting. Yes. So the three became close friends and socialized often together. And Henwood called Isabel by her intimate nickname of Sassy. And she called him Frank in a time where people generally referred to each other as Mr. and Mrs. in mixed company. So that was kind of scandalous in and of itself. Okay. Yeah. Once again, um, everyone then, is boring. <laughs> yeah. Like, ooh, they used each other's nicknames. She so, said oh. Sassy. Yes. Beginning May 17th, Frank and Isabel spent five days alone without John at the Springer's Ranch. It appears during this visit, Isabel implored Henwood to help her get back some, quote, foolish little letters she had written and that she said Von Fool was using to blackmail her. Hmm. And so it's suggested that at this point, Henwood cooked up a scheme to get the letters back for her. Eager to please, Henwood agreed to ask Von Fuhl as a gentleman to return the letters, but there was a string attached. He told Isabel to write a note telling Von Fuhl that things were over between them for good. And at first, she completely refused. So Henwood knows about this affair. Uh, Persistent Frank dictated a letter for her, And so he basically wrote a note and told her she had to give this note to him. He typed a copy to be given to Von Fuhl upon his arrival. So Isabel still didn't want to do this, but he said he wasn't going to intervene or help her if she didn't end the affair. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. He's like, you know, sticking his neck out and then she's just going to continue to write him and – Exactly. For what? So dumb. You know? So when Von Fuhl checked in, he was assigned to room 524, but later asked to be switched to room 603, which was rather conveniently located to the Springer's suite that occupied rooms 600 and 602. So he knew exactly where she was. I mean, they were still incommunicado, obviously. At check-in, he was handed the note that Frank had dictated, and it read... This is just to let you know that someone knows a great deal. Therefore, under no circumstances, telephone me or try to communicate with me in any way. Everything is finally and absolutely off. And if you wish to save yourself serious trouble with someone and his friends, you will forget that you ever knew me. Personally, yeah. Also, he's obviously going to know she didn't write this. This doesn't sound anything like her other letters. No, she would need like a lot of littles in there. <laughs> yes. Personally, my future is of too much consequence and I'll never risk it. Here, she had crossed out the word again. I will send someone to you and have that final talk with you and you must be guided by what they say. I have been forbidden to see you or hear from you in the future and I have given my word, which I propose to keep, not to see you again. I have taken this means of letting you know. So, of course, Von Fool is like, no, yeah, fool. that's not her. Yeah, he's no fool. He's like, screw this. Somebody is intervening in my business and her business and they better step the hell off. So about 4.45 that afternoon, Henwood sent a bellboy into the bar room of the hotel where Von Fuhl was drinking to fetch him to the lobby. And that's there in the lobby where the two men came face to face for the first time. 
Henwood introduced himself and said, I wish to have a conversation with you regarding a subject you are concerned with. I am the person referred to in the letter. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Von Fuhl agreed to a 5.30 p.m. meeting in his own room. So Henwood didn't really have anything to do. It's like 4.45. He won't meet him till 5.30. So he literally just sits in the lobby and he's waiting for Von Fuhl to go up to his room so they can talk. And instead, Von Fuhl like goes over to the front desk. And so at this point, like he goes back into the bar, he settles up his bar tab, then he goes back over to the front desk around 5.20. And so Henwood stands up and he's like, are you ready for me? Because I'm ready right now. And he's like, uh, in a minute. And he goes back up to the front desk and then he just leaves the hotel. So uh, Henwood goes up to the front desk man and he's like, where did he just go? I was supposed to have a meeting with him. And they're like, oh, he's going to this department store around the corner, which I don't think you're (laughs) supposed to tell guests where other guests are going. But I guess they were a little loosey-goosey in the early 1900s. (laughs) So he literally gets in a cab behind him and is like, follow this guy's cab to that department store. And lo and behold, when he gets there, he finds out that Isabel and her mom are sitting at the counter in the department store. So now Henwood's pissed because he's like, Isabel made me get involved in all of this to like get his letters back, get her letters back. And she's meeting up with him at this department store. Of course. She's just using Frankie. Yeah. So this is, uh, again, another excerpt from A Murder at the Brown Palace. Henwood used the moment to chastise Isabel, who must have been alarmed to see him. Isabel, you haven't told me the truth about this. You are going to meet Von Fool here, contrary to what you promised. You would let me see him first and talk to him. Caught off guard, Isabel responded, no, no, I'm not. Now, Isabel, I know better. I know he is on his way down here. You said you wouldn't see Von Fool, and now you're about to meet him. This is the worst thing you can do. When you reach a point with a person that is threatening you, the time comes for a showdown. Make him know exactly that you are not going to let him go any further. Again, she denied she'd spoken to Von Fool, which was unfortunate because at that moment he walked into the conversation. (laughs) So awkward. His first words were directed to Henwood. Oh, eavesdropper, you here? Gazing at Isabel, he said, I want to talk to this young lady alone. You can talk to her right here, and you can't talk to her again alone in Denver or any other place, Henwood said as he took Isabel's arm. I am here to prevent you breaking up this home. As a friend of both John and Isabel, I will deal with you for Mrs. Springer. So, yeah, Von Fool is super angry at this. He accuses Henwood of butting in and being a vile eavesdropper. They begin to fight in the department store, but Isabel and her mother are alarmed and horrified, of course. Yeah, put them dips up. <laughs> so they end up returning to the Brown, somewhat inexplicably sharing a taxi to go back to the hotel together to continue their disagreement in private. So they go up. Yeah, it's so weird. They go up to Von Fool's room because it's obviously not polite to fight in proper society. And once in the room, things take a very hostile turn. Von Fool tells Henwood he is carrying a gun in his waistband. Henwood tells him that he does not and has never carried a a gun, so he is unarmed. And so he's basically saying, whoa, 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 like, I don't have a gun. This isn't a fair fight. I'm not here to, like, you know, 
get into a fight. At this point, Henwood tells Von Fool that he is a close friend of John Springer's and that Springer is responsible for his success in Denver and he's devoted to him. He says, I understand you have some foolish letters of Isabel's. I know her as John's wife and I know that they there has been some threatening to send them one by one to her husband unless she leaves him. I understand you are making threats. John has reached a stage in his life where he needs all the comfort that there is and that can be had. He is not a young man and he is devoted to Isabel and I know she is devoted to him. For God's sakes, Tony, will you break up this home? So this was a wrong tact to take because apparently – um, Tony's very quick to anger and he does not like people using this familiarity with him. Like it would have gone better if he had said Mr. Von Fool. Like the fact that he's like, come on, Tony boy, you know, really pissed him off. And Von Fool just immediately cold cocks Hanwood in the face, just hits him. And so Frank like falls down to the ground and he's like, nope, I'm not going to fight back because he's like, I don't want to cause a scene because I live at this hotel as well and I'll get in trouble if I'm in a fight. But I think it was also because Von Fool outweighs Henwood by like a good 40 to 50 pounds. Yeah, like, I, meant to, I meant to ask you when they like put up them dukes at the department store how big Frank is. So Frank, I'm not sure how tall he is, but he's not over – he might be like more like 5'10", if that. Yeah. And – he is like at best like a hundred and seventy-five pounds, I think. Yeah, so he's working from not. Yeah, the he's best. a string bean. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy is, I mean, remember the story about the high wind men. He's a tough mother effer. Yeah. Uh, this is not a guy you want to get in a fight with. And so at this point, Frank's like, I would not cause a scene here, you know? And Von Fool picks up a wooden shoe rack and starts hitting Henwood with it. Von Fool is just like spanking Henwood left and right at this point. And at this point, he pulls out the revolver and says, get out of my room, you son of a bitch. I can't get you here because they would have it on me, but I'll get you yet and I'll get you quick. So he's basically saying, I can't kill you here because they'll know it's me. Yeah. But he's threatening him. So at this point, if I was Henwood, I would tell Isabel to like go screw herself and I would wash my hands of this whole thing. Like Seriously. this. It's not worth his life. Like, he is getting beaten up and threatened right now. And either, either he's doing it for some guy he's friends with or he's doing it because he's sleeping with Isabel. And even if that's true, I would be like, this isn't worth it. No. <laughs> no. So Henwood definitely should have walked away at this point. But he doesn't. He does retreat back to his own room in this specific occasion. And at this point, Von Fool storms angrily into the Springer's suite, which it's good that John wasn't there because she was there with her mother. And he slaps Isabel in the face. In front of her mom. And he, in front of her mother, who I don't know what her mother knew of this relationship or if she knew what her daughter was up to, but apparently she knew something because he felt comfortable storming in there, hitting her in the face and then saying, you have lied to me. Then, so there's these two pictures of Henwood in their suite that obviously John knew about because they were, one was even addressed to him as well. Okay. Henwood had inscribed on one photo, my bestest is sassy who can bring out the best side of anyone I know, faithfully Frank. And then the other picture said, John and sassy don't, in quotations, with best wishes, quote, I won't Frank. So it seems like there's some inside joke there. Okay. So this Isabel like drives me nuts in this story because for some unknown reason, the previous week, she mentioned in a letter to Tony that Frank had ripped up his photo, 
when that wasn't true. When she had been discussing what Tony was up to with Frank, she had been like, I even have a, a picture of him, the cur. And then she's like, I'm going to rip it up right in front of you. I'm not going to be involved with him anymore. And so she ripped up the picture of Tony in front of Frank and then later tells Tony that Frank was so like into her and didn't want a rival and didn't approve of their relationship that he ripped up the photo. It's so manipulative. Yeah, she is a shit stirrer and a manipulator for sure. She should be on Love Island. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I want to now. So he rips up both of the photos and then he takes a piece of Isabel's stationery and he writes a note. Frankie, dear, you destroyed my picture and here's part of yours. And he included some of the ripped up remnants of the photo in the envelope. At this point, he warns Isabel that if he ever saw her with Henwood, he would fix him and fix him good, even if they were in the presence of her husband. He's like, if I see you with him, I'm going to fucking kill him. Even if you're with your husband, I don't care. Crazy. That's so raw. Yeah. It's so raw. This is just obviously a disaster waiting to yeah. happen. So in this powder keg, all three parties are all staying at the Brown Palace and all are moving in the same circles and going to the same places. At 6.30, Tony Von Fool meets his cousin and another friend for dinner in the Brown dining room. He points out Henwood, who is dining at another table, and repeats um, threats to his dinner companions. Like, he's like, I'm going to fucking – I hit that guy earlier and I'm going to kill him, you know? Like, he's like just – this guy is so insane. His brass balls are, like, off the chart. At one point, he stops at Isabel and John's table where Isabel introduces her lover to her unsuspecting husband. Like, she's like, oh, like, he stops and he's like, oh, Isabel, wow, so nice to see you. And she's like, oh, this is Mr. Von Fool. I knew him in St. Louis. And literally her husband, John Springer, stands up and shakes his hands like, oh, a, a it's a pleasure to meet any old friend of Isabel's. Whoa. That is – I know. She just loves it. She loves playing with fire. Mm-hmm. She's a, a drama queen. It's like – honestly, I think it's like if you look at all these people, so many of them, especially like the Kenya episode, they have everything. They have – they don't have to struggle. They don't – they have everything they could possibly want. And so they like create drama. They create trouble for themselves. Yeah, that's only something that like privileged people can do, have the luxury of doing. 100%. Von Fool is a wine champagne salesman, like I said. So the three of the men decide to call upon his clients, which basically means just drinking in all of the bars. So off they go. Henwood, who is scared for his life, clearly, and worried about Isabel, goes to Hamilton Anderson, who is the police chief of Denver. So his demands are simple. He wants Von Fool run out of town. Henwood tells him the details of the case, like about the letters and the blackmail, leaving out Isabel's name because he doesn't want to incriminate her. Armstrong wasn't interested. He said, as far as I know, Von Fool has done nothing that would justify his being run out of town. I have no authority over the letters. So Henwood reveals that it's John and Isabel Springer. And this is like, he's trying to implore him to help. But the police chief is even less inclined to get involved due to John Springer's elevated social position in town. Like he doesn't want to get involved with a fancy guy's wife. Interesting. And it's it's also interesting that Frank telling him that that guy threatened to kill him isn't enough of a justification to try to get him to run out of town. I mean, I think that at this point, we are only years away from kind of like the wild, wild west of the 1800s and we are in the west. I feel like guys were like threatening to kill each other all the time. I guess. Yeah. It's so crazy. I think also 
if, you know, Isabel and John had gone to the police, they would have taken it very seriously. It was more like, why is this random guy coming and reporting this and not third party thing that's going on. Yeah. And so basically if Isabel accused Von Fool of blackmail, the police chief will see that he's arrested or run out of town, but without Isabel's complaint, which would surely tip off her husband to the goings on, the police chief will do nothing. So it's a total catch 22. Basically he's trying to get this guy run out of town and get the letters back so that her husband doesn't find out. And the police chief's like, I can only do something if her husband finds out. Yeah. Which because it's Mrs. John Springer. It's not Isabel. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Henwood is super frustrated, obviously. And he's even more dismayed when Tony and his friends secure the theater box directly next to the one the Springers and the Henwood are in in the theater that night. And Von Fool even puts his hand through the curtain separating the two boxes and touches Isabel. That's, That's kind of wild. <laughs> yeah. This guy literally has no fear. I mean, he is just cock walking all over that place, just swinging his dick around. He's got a gun on his belt. No one's going to fuck with him. Yeah. So when that happens, Henwood is the only one who sees because, like, I don't think her husband was really looking oh out God. for what was going on. He's, like, He's torturing like him as well. Yeah, and so Henwood sees him and then Isabel gets up and is like, I'm going to go get a glass of water, you know, because obviously like he's signaling to her like, let's go meet up and talk. And at that point, Henwood's like, no, I don't think you should go. Um, We're right in the middle of the theater and stuff. And then her husband's like, oh, yeah, don't go now, Isabel. We'll get a, we'll all go and get a glass of water later. Like, just stay put. And so it's like completely thwarted by Henwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she's just a mess and a drama queen. And also, she should be, like, behaving, I think, a little bit better. At this point, Isabel is 31, Von Fool is 33, and Henwood is 35, which in, like, 1911 ages is a million. Yeah, they're, like, 80. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For In 2020 age, that is 62. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So the next morning, May 24th, which is the day of the murders, Isabel actually takes Von Fool for a car ride with her mother. Like, I have no idea why after this guy hit her and she's claiming that he's blackmailing her, she's like going on a joyride with him. Nobody knows what was said in that car ride or what happened. And then later that afternoon, she tells Henwood about the slap the day before And she's like, it's not the first time he's hit me. So she hangs out with Von Fool in the morning and then goes to Henwood like, I'm so abused. Damsel. Yep. And she also tries to get Henwood at this point to drop it. She actually does try to tell him that she doesn't want him involved anymore because Tony is dangerous. She says, please drop this now where you are for my own sake, my husband's and my future. You are not dealing with this in the right way. She later writes a note warning Henwood that Von Fool has threatened to kill him if he sees them together so she at this point is like you know this is turning into a nightmare just just drop it like it's not going to happen or she might be rethinking things and think maybe she's really going to be with von fool and she doesn't care anymore you know yeah seems like she's all over the place she is all over the place so henwood goes out and buys a gun for his protection so now both guys have guns so that's great 
Just super. Super America. <laughs> yeah. Go, go and get it. He also tries to involve the police chief again, who once again says, without a complaint by Mrs. Springer, his hands are tied. So that night, both Henwood and Von Fool attend a critically acclaimed production of Zigfield's Follies at the theater, and they end up, after the show, both going to the Marble Bar at the Brown Palace. So at this point, I guess the um, the Springers had also gone to the the same show. But Isabel knew that both men were going to the bar and she actually said she wasn't feeling well and went up to her room. So she's up in her suite. Yes. So she's kind of taking herself out of the drama, which is a good idea at this point. I also don't know if women were allowed in bars after a certain period of time at this point. So she might not have been able to go to the bar. So she just wasn't there in any case. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean – I'm saying that she decided to go to her room, but she might have been forced to go to her room because they didn't allow women, you know, at bars at certain points. Because So it's coming up on midnight and the two men end up at the bar within five feet of each other. So Von Fool and Henwood are both drinking and they're both like talking to different groups of people, but they seem to be like kind of inching towards each other more and more. And Von Fool remarks to a friend of his, there's that son of a bitch I licked and I ought to lick him again. Like, beat up. Yeah. You know? I didn't think actually and lick. With- <laughs> well, I don't know. You said you were going to make everything sexual this episode. I was expecting more from you. <laughs> so Henwood attempted to approach him politely. He said, Tony, I mean, Mr. Von Fool, like not repeating the mistake of calling him Tony. Won't you reconsider what happened yesterday afternoon? So Von Fool is angry and probably a little drunk and says, I'm going upstairs now and I'm going to grab that gray-headed son of a bitch by the hair and pull him out of there and show him who's the master here. So he's talking about John Springer. Crazy. Basically saying like you – because basically what Frank said is I'm doing this for John. And he's like, fuck that dude. I'm going to I'm gonna take his wife. I'm going to show him who's the boss here. So Henward was very offended at this. And he said, you can't get that over on me. At this point, the bar patrons were all aware that a conflict is brewing. So James Atkinson, this portly 55-year-old man, comments to his group, let's get out of here. There's going to be a fight. And directly after he says that – Von Fuel yells, I will get you first. And he backhands Henwood right in the jaw. So Frank ends up completely like on his ass on the ground and he's shocked and like was really struck hard. So he falls down. Um, Henwood is stunned and he is convinced that Von Fuel is reaching for his gun. So he gets his gun out and still kneeling, begins firing the weapon. So he starts shooting right away. Like that's all they said to each other. So he fires two quick shots, then a pause, followed by three more in quick succession. And so witnesses for this event are totally divided between what happened between Von Fool hitting Henwood and then Henwood shooting. Some say that Von Fool was advancing towards Henwood and perhaps reaching for a gun. But still others say that he had already turned his back on Henwood and he had his hands on the bar. And so he was completely not threatening to Henwood at all. In any case, after the smoke clears, Von Fool is fatally shot but still alive. And a completely innocent bystander named George Copeland is grievously wounded. Wait, how is he um, fatally shot but still alive? Well, he's gonna die. Okay. Like, so he's 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 been shot in a way that will kill him, but he's currently still alive. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how I wrote that, but basically he's going to die. Um, but he's currently – he doesn't realize 
how bad the shot was. Okay. And then this other guy, George Copeland, um, also is incredibly wounded. And he was just ordering a gin ricky at the bar. Oh. Well, how how did the bullets go in? Did they go in his back or did they go in his front? I'm going to – well, so it's not clear because it shoots through his shoulder – the first shot. And they don't have like the type of forensics that we have today. It's Ugh. obviously it's 1911. Because it's a clear shot through, I don't think that they know whether it, which direction it came Crazy. from. Although you'd think that depending on which way he was standing, they would know which shoulder it went through. But for some reason, they're just asking witnesses about this rather than looking at it forensically. Got it. Which is interesting. So I, I don't I don't know why they don't know. Okay. Um. So two bullets hit George in the right hip and left thigh, cutting the femoral artery. Henwood's fourth shot passed through Von Fuhl's raised wrist and hit – it went through his wrist and hit this other guy, Atkinson, the one I mentioned before, in the left thigh, shattering his femur. In a matter of seconds, two lives will be lost and one man has been crippled for the rest of his life. Basically, the first shot hit Van Fool in the shoulder. The second and third shots hit poor George Copeland. The fourth went through Von Fool to hit Atkinson. And the fifth and final bullet hit Von Fool, piercing his left side between the 11th and 12th ribs, coursing upwards through his body, grazing his stomach, and lodging under the skin of his abdomen. So that's going to be the shot that kills him. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. So finally, two hotel employees disarm Henwood. Oddly calm, Henwood stands up and approaches Atkinson, who had been screaming about being shot, obviously. And Henwood says to him, I'm sorry I shot you. Can I help you? And Atkinson snapped, you've done enough. Get the hell out and leave me alone. Yeah. No, thanks. Go away. (laughs) Screw you, dude. You just shot me. You shot me. I was just trying to get a cocktail. Dude, he's like a, the other guy is like down for the count, but he was just ordering a gin ricky, which sounds delicious. Ugh, Von Fool at this point was still conscious and he seemed to not realize the extent of his injuries. So the brown doctor wrapped his bleeding wrist and he was applying pressure to the shoulder wound. But because the the bullet was embedded in his body, I don't even know. I don't know if that one was like bleeding badly or what because the doctor didn't do anything for that wound. Von Fool said, I'm all right, boys. That fellow winged me in the wrist and it hurts. I don't think I'm seriously injured and I wish some of you would wire my father in St. Louis that I'm all right and not to pay any attention to the newspaper reports he reads. So he really was under the impression that he was going to be fine. But he doesn't realize that he's bleeding internally from the stomach shot and he's most likely obviously in shock, you know, so he's maybe not feeling it. The men surrounding Tony are also mystified by how quickly this violence cropped up. Von Fuhl explained, we had a little argument and Henwood insulted me. I knocked him down and he came up shooting. The attack was cowardly in the extreme. I was not armed and Henwood must have known I was not. He is in luck. If I had a gun, he would have got as good as he said. Yeah. So, so he left his gun he, in his room. He did not have a gun at this at this time. So yes, Henwood's attorney would later try to say that one of his friends took his gun from him, but there's no proof of this. So we don't know whether I they didn't say whether they recovered the gun from his room or where the gun was. The gun might have just been disappeared, which is why I think that the attorney thought that because Henwood saw the the gun on him the day before. Yeah. And then no gun turned up. So 
he thought that one of his friends took it from him. So he might have had a gun, but Tony was in shock and he said he didn't. So I don't know. He didn't only like see his gun. Tony threatened his life with his gun. Yes, the day before though. So we don't know where that gun went. Yeah. So also at this point, they order an ambulance for Tony and George Copeland and George Copeland is like knocked out. So they like carry him to the ambulance and they're like, okay, Tony, get in the ambulance. He's like, I've never been in an ambulance in my life. I've had like many ballooning accidents. I've never been in an ambulance. Like I'll take a cab. And he took a cab to the hospital. (gasps) Meanwhile, what a hard ass. He's such a hard ass. Meanwhile, Henwood didn't attempt to escape or leave the Brown Palace at all after the shooting. He was appalled that he had wounded Atkinson and Copeland, so he broke down in tears and was eventually taken into custody by Chief Armstrong, who should have been like, maybe I should have helped you out before, buddy, and two detectives. So they took him to the county jail at City Hall, and that's when Chief Armstrong asked him what prompted the shooting. He said, Von Fool was looking for trouble and found it. He was after me for some time, but I was ready for him. I never carried a gun in my life until tonight, but I was told that Von Fool always carried weapons and was a bad man. And I thought I would take steps to protect myself. Meanwhile, at St. Luke's Hospital, only a few blocks from the hotel, Von Fool was getting news that his injuries were fatal and he only had hours to live. Oh no, what about Isabel? Yeah, this, this just gets... Doctors wanted to operate to remove the bullet in his abdomen, but before he would let them, Von Fool asked that a priest be sent to his room. It was to Father McDonough that he unburdened himself of the real causes of the barroom tragedy. So he had been telling everyone that he just got into a little spat with Henwood uh-huh. because they were trying to protect Isabel okay. from this. With everyone else, he declined to discuss the woman in the case other than to tell a nurse, I hold no grudge against Henwood. He was a good sport, but I didn't think he'd let a woman come between us. He insulted me and I knocked him down just as I would any cur. I did not think for a moment that he would shoot. When he got up, he started shooting. The coward fired five shots at me while I stood there helpless. The first bullet entered my right shoulder and left me completely at the mercy of the dog. Fred Cook, the cousin with whom he had had dinner the night before, said, my God, Tony, what was the trouble? Was it that woman? And he was like, for God's sakes, don't talk about her. Can't you see that I'm a goner? So he was trying to still hide Isabel's involvement even as he lays dying. So he basically is at this point getting rapidly incoherent as the life drains out of him. And he starts talking about ballooning trips with the past. He's, like, telling the nurse about all of his adventures. And by the time the police come to question him around 10 a.m., he is completely, like, out of it and unable to comment on it. At 11.20, nearly 12 hours after the shooting, Von Fuhl was declared dead. This makes me think that the entire thing was instigated by Isabel because if he's still on his like deathbed is trying to protect her, there's no way he was going to release the letters. And maybe it could have been some sort of like drama between them, but I feel like she just instigated this entire thing. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, he wasn't a good guy. I mean, he still hit her and her mother said that he hit her. So we have some evidence that he was not a good guy, but I think Isabel for sure instigated this entire Thing. Yeah. I mean, she shouldn't have gotten all of these men involved in this situation, you know? Drama. It's like hella drama, man. Yeah. Sadly, just after midnight on June 1st, 1911, George Copeland also succumbed to his injuries after doctors amputated his left leg because they couldn't control the hemorrhaging. Oof. Yeah. And so at that point, Henwood was still hoping he could get a self-defense ruling because everyone saw Von Fool hit him. 
But now there's like this totally innocent guy who also died. So that goes out the window, you know? Yeah. Like, dude, someone hit you with a backhand, mind you, which is a little embarrassing. You fell to the ground and then you just shot him? Yes. Like that's the shit that like we see on the news and we're like, that was so crazy and such an overreaction. I don't know why it wouldn't be Obviously. Obviously. Yep. It it doesn't matter if somebody hits you, you you don't get the right to kill them. So somebody said about Von Fuhl, he knew he was badly hurt, but he never showed a bit of fear. He was the gamest man I ever knew. He knew he was going to die. I know from some of the things he said to me. For one thing, he said, I wish I could just get well, just to get even with that fellow in my own way. Maybe he can get away with it, but he ought not. So that was with some of his last words. Um, his body was returned to St. Louis and his funeral was held on May 29th. And it was one of the largest funeral services the city had ever held with over 3,000 mourners in attendance. Wow. That's mm-hmm. so many people. So he was kind of famous. Yes, he was famous for his ballooning adventures and he came from like a a family that apparently was somewhat related or connected to the founding family of St. Louis. So they were very well known in general and then he got very famous for his adventures. Got it. So the gathered audience was moved to tears by Father O'Connor's 10-minute sermon that warned of the fitfulness of life and admonished them to prepare to meet a sudden end. It's grim. It's real grim. grim. It's grim. Like what makes me most sad though is that like he did all of those dangerous adventures and it was like some coward shooting him to defend. You know, like that's that's what he was talking about. When he was talking to the nurse, he was like telling her all about all the times he almost died and like he couldn't believe that this was the thing that was going to take him out. Yeah, it's such a bummer. So Henwood pleads not guilty to both murders and his trial is set for June 20th. So on that day, Tuesday, June 20th, a crowd composed mainly of women begins jockeying for seats in Judge Greeley Whitford's courtroom, which just goes to show that women have always been super into true crime. (laughs) Um, So the women remarked on Henwood's looks. He was a tall, slim chap with nice eyes and a pleasant, full-lipped smile. So the women were like kind of into him. This is a very like Bundy-esque thing. I was just going to say – yeah. It's like a handsome dude and they're like, oh, even though he killed somebody, he's kind of cute. Well, at you least know? he didn't like rape and murder women like Bundy. I feel like it's so strange yeah. that people were like fixated with him. At least this guy just shot a man who backhanded him. Like that's yeah, a lot less offensive. <laughs> totally. <laughs> So the prosecution had a surprise in store for the defense. They would seek to convict Henwood of first-degree murder of George Copeland, but not of Tony. Why? So the first thing was that there was a potential for Henwood to get off with the claim of self-defense, mostly because everyone who was in the bar saw the fight, saw that, you know, obviously he was aggressive. Von Fuhl was aggressive first. And there was still some contention about whether or not uh, Von Fuhl was co- going towards Henwood or away from him. Okay. So there was some – they could have dug up witnesses that said he had every right to be scared for his life, you know? Um, meanwhile, George Copeland was completely innocent and mowed down while he was buying a drink. And they didn't want to try the cases together in case the ambiguities in the Von Fuhl trial muddied the waters in the Copeland trial. Like if they were like – well, if it was self-defense, then how can he be guilty of first-degree murder in this other case? Because you're saying he didn't mean to kill the Scott, you know? Yeah, that totally makes sense. 
I feel like it was he, also though he had to have had a really bad shot, huh? Because he couldn't have been that yeah, far away. He, no, he wasn't like a gunslinger. Like that was his first and only gun he had ever bought. Like he wasn't lying when he said, "Like I don't have a weapon, I never have." It was a dumb, untrained person's shot. So dumb. So it was also an attempt by the district attorney who, remember, was friends with John Springer to help keep the Springer's name out of the trial because if they weren't going after Von Fuhl, then John Springer was hoping that they could avoid talking about the letters and all of the reasons why this happened, yeah. which, of course, this failed spectacularly. The Denver Post's main headline the day after the shooting was Aeronaut Von Fuhl shot to death in Brown Palace, two wounded. And it claimed in the first paragraph, in the early evening, Henwood and Von Fuhl quarreled over a prominent Denver society woman. On May 26, Isabel's photograph was printed on page one of the post and identified as a friend of Henwood and Von Fuhl. Yeah, so they're they're finding out who it is pretty quick. Oh, no. Both Henwood... Mm-hmm. Both Henwood and his attorney did their best to quash the rumors. His attorney saying there is no ground for asserting that the quarrel between Von Fuhl and Henwood was over a woman. When I say this, I speak advisedly. There was no woman with whom both men were infatuated or in whom they were interested or over whom they were jealous. Henwood was distressed that his attempts to save Isabel's reputation had done exactly the opposite and addressed the papers saying that they had done a great injustice by bringing his dearest friend into this matter. He said, I think it's an outrage to bring that woman's name into the affair when she had nothing to do with it. So Henwood and is still trying to say that she had nothing to do with it. And the papers are like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> Crazy. Yep. In spite of their protestations, or perhaps because of it, on June 5th, the Post ran the headline, Von Fuhl shot in row over Mrs. Springer, friend says, in the headline. And Isabel was the scandalous scarlet woman at the center of the crime and known to all far and wide. So what happened with her after the crime? Like, did she? Oh, it's, it's not good. Okay. So John Springer, who had been ignorant to what had been going on between his wife and Von Fuhl, had now seen and heard enough. Remember that he also got copies of the letters or read the letters himself during this time. He filed for divorce based mainly on those love letters. And as the Post reported that Mrs. Springer enjoyed the most friendly relationships with Von Fuhl. So this is what they're saying in the press. So he's like, I'm freaking out. You're divorced. So while this was all happening, Isabel fled to Chicago, but she returned June 11th to attempt a reconciliation with her husband. Basically, at this point, her family and friends were like, he's going to divorce you. You need to get back into town and beg his forgiveness because he is ready to like cut and run. Yeah. However, at this time, Springer was, like, done. He was decidedly disinterested in reconciliation. He, like, I don't know, obviously their relationship had had some issues before this. Yeah. I mean, she was having an affair and everything, but he didn't even want to see her when she got back from Chicago. His attorneys warned that if Isabel contested the divorce, she would be cut off without anything, without any financial settlement. So Isabel and John literally never met face-to-face -face ever again. Whoa. And I'm shocked Isn't that, that she gets any financial settlement in the I know. He must have felt a little bad for her. So he remained at his ranch and he ignored all of the letters that her lawyers sent to his office or to the ranch. The couple's attorneys handled all communication and the divorce was settled by July 1st. That's how fast they got a divorce. Whoa. 
Isabel had requested $25,000 in cash, which is like something like $680,000 in 2020 money. Whoa. Her favorite automobile, which was a Victoria valued at $5,000, her diamonds and other jewelry, and the right to remain Mrs. John Springer. Why? I think it's just a society thing. Okay. If she traveled, people might not have heard about this scandal, although that's kind of impossible at this point. But if she went all the way to New York, she could travel as Mrs. John Springer rather than as like a divorcee. Okay. She received only $5,000, which is not terrible at around, you know, $136,000 our time. The car, which she needed money, so she ended up selling back to the car for $2,700 in October so she could get more money. So that's like a little more than half of its actual value. Yeah. And he, he bought it back from her. Oof. She also did get to keep her jewelry and her personal property and his name. But another condition of her divorce was that she was to leave Denver immediately and never return. Yikes. So she got completely run out of town. Yes. And while this is all going on and she's dealing with the divorce, she also was subpoenaed and forced to testify in the Henwood trial at the same time which she totally did not want to do. I mean, the last thing she wanted was to be more in the papers at this point. Yeah, because couldn't she get implicated for causing drama between them? Not at this point. She okay. wasn't in any like legal trouble. There was any legal trouble for this. It was more that she was going to get more in the media. She was going to be on the cover of – her picture would be everywhere of her testifying. And at this point, I think she knew she was going to get – divorce but the more that she was in the paper the more it could spread to different areas like people in Chicago were already going to know about this and there was going to be it was going to be really hard for her to hide her identity yeah okay so she doesn't want to do this but she has to um the prosecution's case was that Henwood purchased the weapon with the intention of hunting down Von Fool and shooting him in the back as well as like you know he didn't care he was callous about George Copeland and Jim Atkinson who did survive but was crippled for the rest of his life okay the defense vigorously denied that Henwood shot Von Fuhl in the back. They maintained that Henwood was in fear of his life and he was being an honorable man who was only helping Mrs. Springer due to his friendship with Mr. Springer. Yeah, but he so was, they, they stuck to that line. He was also helping keep a secret, which like isn't cool to your friend mm -hmm. either. No. Unfortunately for Henwood, due to his social standing and friendship with the district attorney, Mr. Springer was not compelled to testify. So he's saying, I did this for my friend because, you know, we're best friends and I love him and blah, blah, blah. And Mr. Springer's like, I'm not testifying for in his defense. No. I'm not doing it. And he doesn't have to. But – Isabel's fair play. So she does testify, but she was high on morphine when she testified. What? So mm -hmm. essentially junked out. She was totally junked out. She's an incoherent mess on the stand who did absolutely nothing to help Henwood at all. So I'm going to read from Whoa. the court transcript because she is just a mess. She was disoriented and absolutely under the influence of drugs. She had a difficult time understanding questions and grew forgetful when it came time to respond. So I'm going to do – this is what they said. Question. You may state your name, Mrs. Springer. My name? Yes. <sighs> Isabel Springer. You are the wife of John W. Springer. Yes, sir. Are you acquainted with Harold F. Henwood? Oh, I am. Were you acquainted with Sylvester Von Fuhl? Yes, sir. Uh, on or about the 23rd day of May, did you know of a conversation that was had between Mr. Henwood and Mr. Von Fuhl relating to certain 
letters belonging to you. At this point, the prosecutor, Elliot, not wanting testimony about Henwood's fear of Von Fool to enter the record, began a series of interruptions. So then they start over again. On the 24th day of May, which was the day Mrs. Springer preceding the night of the trouble in the bar room at the Brown Palace Hotel, did you have any conversation with Mr. Von Fool relating to Mr. Henwood? I don't understand the question. Did you have any conversation on that day? On what day? The day of the night that they had their trouble at the Brown Palace Hotel. Did I what? Stop. Shut up. No, I swear swear to God, this is the exact court transcript. Have any conversation with Mr. Von Fool relating to Mr. Henwood. May I have a minute, please? I cannot get your question clearly, Mr. Bottom. Oh. oh, By the way, that's the defense attorney is Mr. Bottom. (laughs) That was probably confusing to her as well. Yes, this poor guy. I would be banging my head against a wall if I was this attorney. Did Wait, listen to this. Did you have any conversation on the day of the shooting in the Brown Palace Hotel? Did I have any conversation with... Legit. With Mr. Von Fool, wherein Mr. Von Fool spoke about Mr. Henwood. Yes, sir. Did you ever have any conversation with Mr. Von Fool after the dinner hour the evening before? After dinner the evening before, question mark. Yes, immediately after you had your dinner. Here, even the attorneys became confused. Elliot couldn't follow the sequence of events and queried bottom before both sides debated over the admissibility of Isabel's testimony. She sat silent on the stand while they argued. Did I have any conversation with him? Yes. With Mr. Von Fool. Yes. Did he have any with you? The court is like, that is to be answered by yes or no. She goes, yes. You may state what occurred just as briefly as you can. On that evening? So they, they basically just give up. They give up trying to interview her because she's the messiest bitch that's ever been on the stand. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. It's unbelievable. Toasty girl. It's not a good look to get high on morphine. Yeah. So then later, she does come back and she's less morphine-y. Morphine-y. She's less on the morphine. We don't know if she's totally off the morphine at this point, but she's less impaired. And this time, she also doesn't help Henwood because she admits to the prosecution that she begged Henwood to drop the whole affair. So that's like, she's going against exactly what Henwood said. He's like, the lady asked me to get involved because she was being threatened by this gentleman. And so the first time she's on the stand, she's completely incoherent. And the second time she's actually saying, no, I begged him to stop, but he didn't. So it's not helping Henwood at all. No, it's horrible. Um, So the letters, which had been the subject of the entire controversy, were never admitted as evidence. But that might have had something to do with John Springer, obviously, trying to keep the exact explicit details of his wife's affair out of the media because it it reflects badly on him. Of course, yeah. So on Tuesday, June 27th, a bombshell witness gives the papers exactly the sensational story that they were looking for. According to the testimony of Springer housekeeper Cora Carpenter, she She had unexpectedly come across Henwood and Isabel in the ballroom of the ranch while John Springer was away. She said, quote, Mr. Henwood was seated in the chair and Mrs. Springer stood in front of him. Mr. Henwood had his arms around Mrs. Springer's hips and her hands were on his shoulders and in his hair. When they saw her, she said Mrs. Springer pushed Henwood away and he released her. 
but oh, Uh-oh. there's more. Wait, threesome with Cora? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a real bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> she said that on the first night that Henwood was there alone, he stayed in a bed on the first floor in Mr. Springer's office. But on the second night, he moved the bed upstairs to the red room, which was connected to Isabel's bedroom by a bathroom. So Henwood told Ms. Carpenter that he was going upstairs around 5 p.m. to check on Isabel because she had fallen from her horse earlier that day. And he apparently never came back out until the following morning. So she saw the maid carry several whiskeys to the room throughout the night, like what she deemed more than just one person could drink. And the next morning, she found Mrs. Springer's nightgown torn to strips in the front and around the neck. You shut your mouth. (laughs) Yep. And she also noted that Mrs. Springer's bed was rumpled and in great disorder while Mr. Henwood's had not been touched or slept in. It must have been a pretty little bed if he carried it upstairs all by himself. (laughs) It's like a little roll away. A rollaway bed. Yeah. Okay. I love a, a rumpled sheet situation. Uh huh. So Henwood countered on the stand that Carpenter's testimony was entirely untrue. He had only spent a few minutes in Mrs. Springer's room. He had never had a drink in her private quarters. And he completely refuted the ballroom story while also saying cryptically, I wouldn't have cared if she did see me. Mm-hmm. So that's all he said about this. Apparently, also. Isabel was really, really pissed about this. Pissed at Cora? Yeah. She said to the papers about this, she's like, I hope you will, no one who ever reads this will know like the betrayal of the lies of somebody who worked for you. And like, she was just like saying that the woman was vile and lying about her and was just jealous of her. Is Cora the nail tech that she confided in for? It's a No, that's fl- Flora. So the manicurist didn't come forward. Okay. Yeah, so she stayed loyal to her. Okay. Cora was the housekeeper at the ranch. Okay. So then after, you know, they interviewed the biggest witness, um, they began to do their closing remarks. Bottom once again walked the jury through the events leading up to the shooting and emphasized Henwood's belief that he was defending his friend and his friend's wife from Von Fool and Mrs. Springer's foolishness. He told the jury, no one can have greater regret than this defendant at Mr. Copeland's death. Mr. Henwood is being tried for all intents and purposes for the killing of Von Fool, and in order to convict him in the Copeland case, you must believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he killed him intentionally. He asked for an acquittal. Henwood was moved to tears and dabbed at his eyes with a handkerchief. Bottom's words had barely died away when Elliot, that's the prosecutor, Mm -hmm. tore into Henwood's defense. Speaking in a low voice, forcing the jury to listen closely, he said, Frank Harold Henwood killed George E. Copeland and Tony Von Fool. Why should one attempt to prove to this jury that black is white just because white happens to be the side he's allied with? I, for one, shall not try it. It is an insult to the intelligence of this jury. And there followed a brilliant summary of the evidence against Henwood, the bullet in Von Fool's back. Ooh, so I guess there was evidence. Interesting. Yeah. The fact that Springer never testified on Henwood's behalf, that Henwood himself said, I shot Mr. Von Fool. I intended to shoot Mr. Von Fool. I knew what I was doing. I shot in self-defense. And that Isabel Springer pleaded with him to withdraw. He scoffed at Henwood's contention that he only acted to save the Springer's marriage. 
<laughs> Mr. Chile said Henwood was taken into the bosom of the Springer family. God, how literally true that statement was. Damn. Figuratively and literally. Uh-huh. So the judge instructed the jury to find Henwood guilty of first degree or second degree murder. Like basically guilty or innocent of first degree or second degree murder. And would not allow the charge of manslaughter to be put on the table to Henwood and his attorney's chagrin. Yeah, it wasn't an accident. Yeah, but they they thought that they were going to try to go for that lesser charge and the judge was like, nope. After deliberating for four hours, the 12-man jury, which by the way was all men because women couldn't serve on juries at this point. Yeah. Well, oh, 12 angry um, men. 12 angry men, baby. Found Henwood guilty of second degree murder. Henwood was devastated and he returned to his cell telling reporters, whether she meant to or not, Mrs. Springer gave me the double cross. Her testimony when she stated that I had butted in on her affairs after she told me not to hurt me. It hurt me because it was with her consent that I tried to get those letters from Von Fool. So that certainly didn't help. And it didn't help that Springer did not testify on his behalf either you know yeah. um at this point though like both of the springers were just trying to save themselves and save their own reputations like they wanted so far away from this scandal you know and henwood at this point a must have been feeling like an idiot like why did he get himself involved in this and now he's going to go to prison for the rest of his life yeah. you know so at this point, he also extremely foolishly reads a diatribe of accusations about the way the judge handled the trial. Basically, the judge is handing down the sentence and he's like, do you have anything to say before I sentence you? And he's like, hold on, let me get this letter out where I'm going to complain about how you handled the case. Oh, my God. Yeah. He even publicly acknowledged that Isabel had been under the influence of morphine. He basically said it was like a crock that the court allowed her to testify when she was clearly on morphine, yeah. um, which is true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in general, he criticized the court and his treatment. So then the judge was like, cool, well, I'm supposed to sentence you between 10 years and life because it's second degree murder. So he could have given him a lenient sentence. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to give you life because you're an asshat. <laughs> you're an asshat he's like i don't believe for a second that you didn't do this on purpose um and you can rot in jail for the rest of yeah your life. man you killed two people yeah so in february of 1913 after 22 months of imprisonment frank's conviction was overturned and a new trial was set for May 28, 1913, on the basis that the a new judge had determined that manslaughter should have been presented as an alternative charge. Did he? Andy's just like Andy is just I'm describing her because Andy's <laughs> literally just her mouth I know, is I hanging open. I need to open. stop doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wait. So did he do the like? Did he do that from jail? Did he get people? Um, yes. Okay. His attorney appealed. Okay. Basically, and they won. So his conviction was overturned. So the second trial was much of the same. However, minus the Springer's former chauffeur and housekeeper. So Cora did not attend the second one so huh. they didn't have her saying yeah they basically could not find her yeah they don't know where she was like she could be <laughs> dead no i think she had to leave because no one would employ her because nobody wants an indiscreet housemaid oh man yeah so she just went to another town hopefully i don't think anyone knocked her off but that's another story for another day so there were two new witnesses that I'm going to tell you about. Isabel, who had effectively been banished by her ex-husband, was unreachable, and she now resided in New York. 
And the defense desperately wanted to retry her because they still wanted her to come on the stand and say, I wanted him to do this. I encouraged Henwood to do this, obviously. But the prosecution took out an ad in the paper that read if she returned and changed even one word of her testimony, she would be charged with perjury. So they were basically like, let this be known that if you're thinking of coming back, Isabel, to to do this, we will put you in jail if you change even an iota of what you said. And she's like, oh, shit, I was high. Yeah, she's like, I don't know what I said. I have no idea what I said. So she, like, A, I'm pretty sure that legally based on this contract, her divorce contract, she wasn't supposed to come back anyway. Then the prosecution made it very clear that she was going to get in a buttload of trouble. Plus, if she came back, she'd be back into the papers, which she was trying to move on and live her life. Yeah. Yeah. So she absolutely did not come back. And they used her remarks, which were unhelpful, basically her saying, I didn't want him to do that, from the 1911 trial. And they used those remarks. They were read instead, much to the defense's unhappiness, of course, because that was not helpful at all. The prosecution's star witness this time was Jim Atkinson, the the man whose femur had been shattered. Uh He had been too injured to testify the first time around because the trial happened like the next month. But this time around, he was coming in on crutches and he was ready to put this guy away because obviously he's pissed. And it's really interesting because they describe this moment that he enters the courthouse and apparently there was a huge thunder and lightning storm. So like the moment he walks in, this thunder happens and then the lightning flashes behind him and he's already like a white haired guy wearing and he was wearing like a white suit. So they said like, well, he, he maintained the leg. It just wasn't working. Oh, I thought, okay. um, so he was on crutches. Yeah. So they had taken George Copeland's leg sorry, off, but sorry. then he died. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So he's like coming in on crutches and he's all dressed in white and he's got white hair and then this like lightning flashes behind him and they said he looked like a ghostly specter come to accuse Henwood. Scary. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think also this was like very well done on the prosecution's behalf because they're having this guy literally come limp in, obviously affected by the crime. Yeah. And Atkinson testified that the men had words at the bar before Von Fuhl struck Henwood. So he was also testifying that, you know, Henwood might have said something to provoke him, you know, like that they were fighting already. So it wasn't just like this thing where all of a sudden Von Fuhl got aggressive for no reason. And he also said that Von Fuhl was completely turned away from Henwood and he had both hands back on the bar when he was shot. Yikes. Yeah. So this was a crushing blow to the defense's strategy. Yeah. That they're trying to say it's self-defense. Well, didn't you say that after he like fired all of his shots, there was like a pile of smoke in the air? Like he had no idea what he was doing. He had no idea what he was doing. The surprise witness for the defense was none other than John Springer himself. No way. Uh-huh. So he, the, he just wanted like, to squash this shit. I think so. Also, later on, it comes out that John had spent a lot of time and money to get down to the nitty gritty about what really happened in this case. And he actually believed Henwood. Believed so what about Henwood? He, Well, he knew that his wife was having an affair and he believed that Henwood was acting honorably in his stead. 
So through the two years since the shooting, Springer had become convinced that Henwood had indeed acted on his behalf against Von Fuhl and wanted to assist in his defense in the new trial. So I guess this means that Springer believed that Henwood had never had an affair with Isabel. There's no way he would defend him if he thought that there was an affair. Uh, yeah. I mean, but did he not listen to the first trial? Or I mean, I'm assuming he knew everything, but maybe he got Cora discredited or something. I don't know. Weird. So, like, basically, Henwood maintained until the day he died that he had never had an affair with Isabel. So is it possible that they were just friends and she, like, sucked him into this, you know? Yeah, but also, like, are you really going to murder someone who smacks your friend's wife? Like, I, I feel know. like there's a little bit of passion entangled in that, you know? Mm-hmm. So John Springer testified that Henwood had never treated Isabel with impropriety, that they were close friends and business associates, and that Henwood had always conducted himself as a perfect gentleman. During his time on the witness stand, he pointed out that Henwood and the couple very often socialized at the hotel, the theater, the bank, and his ranch. Nothing obscene had ever happened. The prosecutor rebutted that that was to his knowledge. Like, of course, John Springer saying is nothing happened. I never saw anything happen. It's like they wouldn't have an affair in front of you. No, sorry, sir. One of the most riveting moments of the trial occurred when John Springer stepped off the stand and stopped at the defense table, placing his left hand on Henwood's shoulder and offering his right hand to shake. He said, hello, Frank. How are you, old fellow? For a second, Henwood appeared to lose his composure, his eyes tearing up, and then he rose and took Springer's hand. Pretty well. Thank you, John. And thank you, John. I think he was just so relieved that Springer was testifying on his behalf. Yeah, I mean, Isabel was zero help. <laughs> Obviously, she was a nightmare. So this especially buoyed Frank's mood, and he believed he had a decent chance of being acquitted, especially like maybe getting manslaughter now that it's on the table. Okay. Um. So like he's like, okay, I might get acquitted completely and be freed or I might get a much lesser charge. When the second trial was concluding, the judge ordered the jury to find Henwood guilty or innocent of first or second degree murder or of voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. Um, Self-defense was not entered. And also this time around, the jury was deciding the punishment, not the judge. If it's first degree murder, they have to rule whether they think he should get the death penalty or life in prison. Okay. So the prosecutor in his closing remarks made the situation a real class issue, which is like a tradition as old as time. He basically said the wealthy elite were acting immorally while the working class folk with good values struggled. He painted John Springer as some sort of cuckold who allowed his wife to be bedded by many and asked the jury if they could trust the judgment of who he considered to be a gentleman if he was no gentleman himself, hmm. which is real rough for Springer and pretty ballsy for the uh, the prosecutor who apparently wasn't friends with Springer like the last guy yeah. was. Um, also effective as the men on the jury were largely of the working class. So he was really appealing to the jury being like, look at these richy riches running around, being immoral, sinning. You're all working hard and like treating your wife well and being, you know, faithful and not drinking. And we're also like rolling up to prohibition at this yeah. point. We're like just butting against it. So people are getting really sick of all of the immorality, yeah. you know, all the fun. 
all the fun. They don't like anyone else having the fun. Henwood could see the jury room from his jail cell. And the men at one point were all laughing together, which made Henwood remark to another prisoner, I think they're going to free me. Don't you think so? Men don't laugh when they're sending another to the gallows. So Frank was feeling very positively about this whole thing. After only two hours of deliberation, which is nothing, the jury returned and delivered a guilty verdict of first-degree murder, and they ordered the penalty of death. That is so much worse than his second degree. I did not think you were going to say that. No. When I was reading the book, I thought for sure he was going to get manslaughter. Yeah. Yeah. So this did not work in his favor. This was the opposite. It's like he doubled down and it did not work out for him. Man. Yeah. So it's it's crazy. He was stunned and he could barely stand up. And when he finally did, the only thing he said was, I'm not afraid to die. Oh, no. And I know things were not good for him too because he had some money left for two years. He spent all his money at this point in, in the world. You could, if you had money, he could like buy a private cell. He could get the Brown Palace to deliver meals to him. He got to wear his own clothes in jail. Like he got to purchase books to read. Like he was like buying special perks. And at this point, all of his money ran out. So he had to like actually share a jail cell. He had to actually like eat like the cold like bread and water that the other guys ate like he did not have any of the the like rich guy perks anymore he was like flat out and he was gonna be executed well and how much longer did he have to live until his execution so his trial was in may and despite appeals henwood's execution by hanging was ordered for the week of october 27th wow yeah, so they said that they he, they had to execute him sometime between October 27th and November 1st, 1913. But on October 16th, two weeks before his hanging was set to occur, Governor Elias Amons commuted his sentence to life in prison, due in large part to the recommendations of Judge Butler, the judge who had presided over the second trial, and his old friend John Springer. So John Springer and Judge Butler had both argued passionately for the commutation because they didn't think it was right. Governor Elias Amons signed an executive order giving Henwood life in prison instead of hanging. The policy of capital punishment is not involved, he wrote. The only question to be determined is whether the death penalty in this case is excessive. Amons was answering the recommendation of Judge Butler and also the pleadings of John Springer, who appeared before the parole board and told his story of the circumstances surrounding the affair between his wife and Von Fuhl. I would have killed Von Fuhl myself had I known the situation. This man, Henwood, butted into my business. He explained the results of his own investigation into Von Fuhl's behavior with Isabel Springer before the shooting. I have spent thousands, this is John Springer, mm -hmm. trying to learn the truth of this matter, and it has not been in vain. Isabel's mother on her deathbed sent word to me that Von Fuhl had threatened in her presence to kill Isabel with a revolver, which he pointed at her. Von Fuhl was holding over my wife's head letters she had written years before. He blackmailed her and was trying to get diamonds and money from her. Instead of coming to me, she went to my friend Henwood, a man I had helped and placed where he could earn a living. So, Ugh. I don't know. I think those letters came from that year, Mr. Springer. Yeah, I wonder if so, he's like playing 
dumb or if he knows that yeah. he's just trying to get his friend out and not killed. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. So in April 1922, nearly 11 years after the murders, Governor Oliver Shoup issued an executive order granting Henwood clemency with the stipulation he never returned to Denver. He did a executive order to free Henwood after only 11 years in prison. That's crazy. Why? Well, the governor acted after prodding by John Springer, who broke into tears in his appeal before the governor. This time, though, Judge Butler, who had thought that um, the death penalty was harsh, was like, yeah, nope, I'm not into this. He was not on their side about this. He was like, is life worth so little to you that this guy took two people's lives and you're just going to let him out after 11 years? Yeah, there's like, that's not really middle ground. (laughs) No. So the judge was really pissed about it. And a lot of people were, especially Tony Von Fool's family. And his cousin even suggested, you might try to parole him to St. Louis, where his friends would be especially interested in his welfare. Oh my God. Yeah, like (laughs) he had to like change his name, go witness protection style. So with the help of one of his wealthy supporters, a Mrs. McHugh, Frank moved to New Mexico to work as a hotel manager. But only 10 months after his release, he was returned to the Canyon City, that's the jail he was in, after threatening to kill a woman who refused to marry him. Oh, buddy. Uh Uh-huh. He had the chance and he couldn't hack it. But I mean, this is what happens to a lot of people who go to jail. They are not – there's no such thing as like rehabilitation. People get ruined in jail. Just ruined. Yeah. You know? So whatever he was guilty of going in, he had lived through 11 years of God knows what an early 1900s prison is really like, especially after your money runs out. Yeah. And – I I wonder if he learned like the only way to deal with things is through aggression, you know? Man. I know he had his shot. So uh, this time he was put back behind bars for good on March 26, 1923. I mean, he was barely out. He wasn't even out for a year. That's so sad. So his health deteriorated while he was in prison and some six years later, he died at age 52 after a heart episode occurred while he was getting his tonsils out. Yeah. So his body was sent to New Jersey where he was laid to rest beside his parents in the Holy Name Cemetery in Jersey City. So if you live in Jersey City, you can go to the Holy Name Cemetery and check out Frank Kenwood. That's an outdoor corona activity. Yeah, totally love murder approved to go to a cemetery. Um, So that closes a sad chapter on this story, but I know that you're dying to find out what happened to the Springers after this. Duh. Especially Isabel, that little minx. In 1915, 56-year-old John Springer married his third and final wife, 27-year-old Janet Elizabeth Ormer Lota. Whoa. So it's... Yeah, she's got a lot of last names. But she was only married once before. <laughs> um, this is like that old standby they say, like, when a guy says, like, I keep getting older, but they keep staying the same age. Because yeah. <laughs> she's the same age that Isabel was when he married her. I know, dude. Did you not learn your lesson? <laughs> yeah. But apparently this one worked out for him. She was also a divorcee whose marriage at 17 to a Parisian painter had ended in Colorado Springs in 1909. So Springer made every effort to erase his second marriage to Isabel, like, from history. On the new couple's marriage certificate, his marriage to Jeanette, he listed his previous wife as deceased and answered no on the line that asked if he had been divorced. 
in the who's who in America, Janet was listed as his second wife. And in his alumni organization, he was listed as only having two wives, his first who passed away and Jeanette. Crazy. Yeah, he just did everything he could to erase her existence. Even though she's still running around with his name? Uh-huh. Crazy. Till the day she died. Yep. Springer was still well known for his oratory skills and was praised for his delivery of Buffalo Bill Cody's eulogy in 1917. So he was still giving speeches and and people liked him. Oh my goodness. That's going to be us. (laughs) Running around giving speeches in our old age. Somebody will still like us, hopefully. That's if we're not running the clam trap. That's true. That's true. (laughs) We could give speeches at the clam trap. We'll give many speeches at the clam trap. It's a bonus or a hindrance. (laughs) Mike Knight. The drink. Yeah, exactly. In 1932, 73-year-old Springer underwent surgery to remove a cancerous tumor in his stomach, and he survived, but he never truly recovered his health. His life once again was darkened by tragedy. In 1940, when his only daughter, Annie, then 48 years old, committed suicide by shooting herself in the heart. What? Yeah. So Annie had had a like a well-off life, but a kind of a troubled life. It doesn't appear like she had married or found any sort of vocation or happiness. And at this point in her life, she had some sort of an ear issue that had been bothering her for years. And it drove her insane to the point where she was convinced that she had some sort of tumor or growth in her brain that they weren't removing. And she went to the doctor like a million times and they're like, no, you don't have anything. We are positive you don't have anything. And so that's why she said she ultimately committed suicide is she knew that there was this tumor in her brain. And they did do an autopsy on her after her suicide and she did not have a tumor. Whoa. I wonder if it was like an equilibrium thing. Maybe. Or I mean, maybe she had some sort of mental illness that made her believe that with like a schizophrenia or yeah, some sort which of paranoia. Which they didn't you even know? acknowledge back then. Which, yeah. So they would have never you know, diagnosed. Yeah. So that was really sad. She actually had a lot more money than her father because she had inherited all of her grandfather's money. So when she died, she actually willed her father a house and $2,500 a month from her estate. Whoa. Yeah. So she actually gave her dad money after that. So he passed away in 1945 at the age of 85, and his wife passed away in 1957, and they are now buried beside each other in the Littleton, Colorado Cemetery. Oh. Yeah. Okay, on to Isabel, Isabel, Isabel. Thank you. She did not remain unscathed for her involvement in the murders and the scandal. I absolutely feel like while she manipulated this whole situation, she ended up paying for it even if she didn't end up in jail. Following her divorce from Springer, she had a hasty departure to Chicago. And that's where she took to wearing white hair to hide her identity. White hair? Yeah, so she was yeah, she was wearing like a white haired wig to try to hide her identity, but it was a ploy that didn't really disguise her. It just instead made her look old. So there's a, a photo of her in the book that we will post on the Instagram. And Andy, she looks she looks like she's like 70 years old and she was really only like 35 in the picture. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask. I feel like obviously I know she probably is in a little bit of turmoil due to what happened. But I'm like, girl went to like New York in the 1920s. Like she probably – and she was still like 30. 
She probably had like a Man. no. She did not make it to the twenties. Just so you know, what? Yeah. Uh huh. So she moved to New York City in 1913, and she resumed her hard partying lifestyle. Only this time she wasn't a doe-eyed ingenue. The years of heavy drinking and morphine abuse had aged her well beyond her 33 years. Stop. No, so she wasn't – she had put on some weight. She just looked a mess. Her skin was a nightmare. So – but despite all this, like, she still had a great personality and she made friends readily um, with a bunch of people in, like, a very interesting avant-garde set in New York. And one of them was a woman named Audrey Munson, who was the city's leading model whose face and figure was the inspirations for more than 30 nude public sculptures. Whoa. Yeah, she is like – there's a book about her in and of herself. She is a story. Like she is this like really wild woman who was like the first actual supermodel really. She's fa- fascinating. So she was also like – you can still find her at the Astor Hotel and she's also um, in front of the New York Public Library. Crazy. So I don't know. I have to – I have to look up exactly where she is and I'll send you some photos so we can maybe use those too. So when Audrey's modeling career began to wane in the early 20s, she wrote a tell-all memoir and some of her friendship with Isabel was included in the tell-all. So she claimed that the Brown Palace murderers were not actually about the letters, that they were rather about Von Fuhl's possession of a nude portrait of Isabel that he threatened to expose if he wasn't paid hush money. That's fucked up. Isn't that wild? So basically in those letters, if you reread them, but like based on like, oh, you'll get the letter, like you'll get the response you want. You'll get the thing that you've been waiting for. Maybe it wasn't about her and him getting to date her. Maybe it was about like this money and this blackmail he was demanding. Crazy. But there's all the letters that Uh she wrote him too. Like all the whimsical, loving little letters. Mm -hmm. So she says, this model says that the painting was burned by friends after Isabel's death, but she saw it herself. (gasps) But there's absolutely no evidence to support this claim other than her account, which we don't know how true she was. Gossy, goss, goss. Uh Uh-huh. So Audrey also helped Isabel get modeling work, like artist modeling work, but it didn't last because she was constantly on morphine and the artist found her impossible to work with. Yeah, because she's probably like nodding off. Yeah, exactly. And they needed somebody to like hold a pose. I mean, they're they're asking her to pose for like sculptures and stuff. You you can't just be like flopping over, you know? (gasps) Oh, man. Yeah, so Isabel was hardly the only society lady to find herself addicted to drugs, obviously. Um, Opium and morphine were extremely popular drugs that were so easy to find and procure at this time. Um, Literally, they said this was an era where prescriptions for morphine were available for 50 cents before 6 p.m. and 75 cents before midnight, and a doctor would just bring them to you at your house. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And they said that women were actually believed to outnumber men 10 to 1 in opium slash morphine addiction because a lot of bars didn't allow women after a certain hour or it was looked at as like impolite or not ladylike to be drinking in like saloons. So a lot of men would like go out drinking and that was kind of their release. Like they would just get to go out and get drunk and like blow off steam. And women would literally just like lie home and do morphine. Crazy. 
Mm-hmm. Or opium. Yeah. So which is so wild. So her health declined rapidly and she was left destitute by medical bills. So she was admitted to the Metropolitan Hospital on Blackwell's Island in New York City on March 28th, 1917. In the lonely bed in the charity ward, she died there on April 19th of that year. And the official cause of death was cirrhosis of the liver, an enlargement that, of course, indicates a lifetime of alcohol abuse. The death certificate listed her as 31 and married when, in fact, she was 37 and very decidedly unmarried. Whoa, crazy. Uh, Well, that's what she must have signed in as when she was admitted. 31. I'm 31. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even she's dying. She's on her deathbed and she's lying about Still her lying. age. God bless her. It's unbelievable. <laughs> okay, so here's the, the part I wanted to read from the book. Okay, so this is about Isabel's death. Her death attracted no notice in the New York newspapers, but famed evangelist Billy Sunday was moved enough by her demise to tell a crowd of 20,000 during a series of revival meetings at his New York tabernacle. Take warning from the fate of Mrs. John W. Springer. A few years ago, she was a society woman with all the jewels and trappings that go with society women. A day or two, she died a pauper at Blackwell's Island. Sin did that. She used to be called one of the most beautiful women in the United States or Europe. And he said, I knew her when she was in Denver, when she was the pet of international society. She had great wealth and a palatial home, but she yielded to sin, the sin of society. She drank at hotels and cafes. <laughs> Whoa, we're, so, we're fucked then, Jesse. They dr- she, oh. she drank at hotels and cafes. Was, oh, we are totally bone daddied. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so then they asked... John Springer in Denver, like about a comment about his wife's passing. And he said, I have nothing to say at all. He told the Rocky Mountain News, if you were to consult my wishes, you would say nothing at all about it. And they told Henwood, who was still in jail at this point, uh, like the first time around or second time. Um, I have not heard anything whatsoever about the whereabouts of Mrs. Springer or anything in connection with her or her movement since the unfortunate occurrence in the Brown Hotel in Denver. I'm very sorry to hear of her death. He could not, however, hide the bitterness of her betrayal at his trials. The shooting at the hotel was due to my efforts to save Mrs. Springer from a man I considered thoroughly immoral. But evidently, the lesson of that tragedy was not heeded. She went the way so many women do when they start on the primrose path. I realize now that I should not have interfered in any way. Unforgiving, he concluded, death has sealed the lips and silenced the voice that might have done so much to help get me out of prison. Yep. Yep. She didn't give a crap about you, Henwood. Sorry. I really hope he got some pussy out of it. God, in the very least, what if it is actually that he didn't even have an affair with her? Then that's her? like really sad. Oh, oh man. Okay, well, that's that's the story of the double murder at the Brown Palace. Whoa. Totally whoa. That was a totally different story than what we've been doing, and I really liked it. I'm glad you liked it. I think I want to sprinkle like a nice historical one in every once in a while to just to get a different vibe. I mean, it also just goes to show that these types of cases, these types of stories of love gone wrong have been happening since the beginning of time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'm still rooting for – what was it? We wanted one from like the 1800s because remember I, I asked like – yes. 
I actually have one from the 1800s. Shut up. Uh-huh. I'm really excited about it, too. It's a totally different type of story from this one and obviously from Kenya. But we're going to probably do – we've got, like, I have so many coming up. And not this next time, but the time after, we're actually doing a, a listener-recommended one. And we have so many good coming up that I'm probably going to wait, like, another 10 episodes before we do another historical okay, one. Okay, cool. I'm done with that. But guys, look forward to it because it's actually also a kind of famous case. I think some of you will have heard of this murderer. And it does fall under the purview of love murder, meaning that there is um, some romance involved. But it's also an extremely well-known frontier-type murder case, which I'm really excited about. Frontier murder. Uh-huh. Frontier murder is kind of – it's like my my second favorite behind love murder. <laughs> In closing, ballooning is dangerous, but not as dangerous as having an affair with the wrong person. Morphine before a trial is never a good look. Although, morphine is never really a good idea. (laughs) No, it's not. And as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Good Good night. Goodbye. Bye. 